Welcome. The following conversation took place at Harvard University. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers invited Ray Dalio, the founder, chairman, and co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, to discuss Dalio's unique views on economics. The conversation is based off of Dalio's 30-minute animated video entitled How the Economic Machine Works, which is available on YouTube and at economicprinciples.org. Here now are Larry Summers and Ray Dalio. We have a special guest, Ray Dalio, Chief Executive Officer, Chairman, and Chief Investment Officer of Bridgewater Associates. Ray and I have known each other now for the better part of uh, 20 years since Ray was the most important private sector participant helping to drive the introduction of index-linked securities in the 1990s during my time at Treasury. And Ray and I have been friends ever since. Some of the most prescient commentary and advice that I received on the financial crisis of 2008 came from Ray based on work that had been done at Bridgewater. Bridgewater is the world's largest hedge fund, the world's largest macro asset manager, and the institution that has made the most money for its investors in a certain category. While a very large fraction of successful investment activity is in one way or another technical and relies on an understanding of market dynamics in one way or the other, Bridgewater stands out for having the largest part of its investment decision-making and track record be based on macro analysis of how economies and therefore markets are uh, likely to evolve. Ray has, in the last couple of years, come to the conclusion that it would be broadly helpful to him and he hoped others to promote an active and critical discussion of the kind of methodologies that Bridgewater uses in understanding financial fluctuations and uh, macroeconomic developments and the movements in asset prices, which I think it is fair to say has elements in common, but is importantly different in vocabulary and I've come to think in substance from the kind of macroeconomic and financial analysis that is more conventionally taught in economics departments like this one. And so Ray and I agreed that it would be a useful undertaking to have a discussion of these approaches in which he would have a chance to lay out what he saw as the important elements in uh, his approach and all of us would have a chance to consider them and engage in some active discussion. So my role here is only going to be to try to traffic cop the discussion a little bit to frame on occasion for Ray some of the questions that would be natural to ask about this approach coming out of the kinds of training that, that we provide here. And I emphasize Ray's uh, performance uh, in markets not because anybody here is under any illusion that they're going to learn in an hour and a half how to beat the market, but because these ideas have had some track record of success in making a kind of prediction that 
many have found it over time uh, difficult to make and that that should be weighed if they seem unconventional or offbeat uh, in uh, some ways. So Ray, welcome to Harvard. We're very grateful to you for coming here. I just want to start off by uh, saying that the reason that, I th that I'm eager to uh, get this thought out and to have this kind of an interchange is because um, through the financial crisis that we've actually been through together, um, we have encountered a lot of pain that is based on differences in my approach than the conventional approach. And I'm not commenting on the conventional approach. People can uh, study that themselves. The important thing that I think is that rather than uh, just ask people, what do you think is going to happen or what should we do, uh, that before we get to that, we should have a discussion of how does the machine work. It's like a, a biology. If you were a doctor, the first thing you don't want to ask, what should we do with the patient? You would want to ask the question, how does this machine work? And I think uh, in a 30-minute video that's on YouTube, I uh, did a 30-minute video, How the Economic Machine Works. We'll go over that today. And I think that it's important to understand, does it work this way or not? And if we can agree that that's how it works, other things will fall out of that. And that's where that's coming from. So the, the basic um, idea that we're, we're talking about is that actually uh, economics is a very, very simple thing. All it is is a whole lot of transactions, but a transaction is a very simple thing. And uh, so we're, uh, this is a diagram that uh, represents uh, the way I think markets, m markets work and the way I look at markets. There's a total amount of spending for any good service or financial asset, total amount of spending. And that spending comes from different buyers who can pay for that spending in either money or credit. So when you go into a store and you want to buy a piece of clothing, you can pay for that with money and then the transaction settled, or you can pay with that with credit and then you owe money. Credit is a, uh, is a promise to uh, deliver money. It all spends the same. And the amount of spending that occurs divided by the total quantity that is sold equals the price. So I look at it in a very different way than traditionally, which means that normally um, demand is measured in units in traditional economics. You know, um, the supply and demand are both measured in units. And then there's a supply-demand curve. Now, I just go through a calculation. I say, what's the spending? And when I look at that, I look at who are the individual buyers and what are their motivations. There's not a market in aggregate, or there's not behavior in aggregate that matters. When we, people say the market doesn't like this, or let me bring back the confidence of the market, it lacks a specificity to it that is misleading. Different participants in a market have different motivations. For example, uh, you know, a pension fund, when prices sell off, will rebalance and they'll buy. Other investors will sell. And by knowing the behavior of investors, their reasons, each one of those reasons, you can look at a buyer and you understand that that's all that price is. If you look at the sellers, you can understand that that's all that price is. So if we can agree on that, we, other important things fall out from that. So for example, there was a lot of debate over the question of, does the Fed's printing money, is that going to be inflationary? Well, mechanistically, you would 
say, if you believe this, then you would say, if to the extent that purchases made by money are offsetting reduced purchases made by credit, so that the amount of spending is the influence on the price, not the amount of money, then we will not, if, if, as long as the, the money is being spent makes up for the credit that's not being spent, and so spending remains the same, it's spending that matters, not money that matters, and such. Certain things fall out of that. And so when we had the financial crisis, is different than the financial crisis, what, what I was able to see uh, is that there were certain entities that needed, let's take the European financial crisis, certain entities needed to sell bonds for various reasons, and so sovereigns needed to sell bonds. Those purchases of those bonds, if, by looking at that, those buyers, would not increase at the rate that uh, would be necessary to fund those, so there would be a funding gap, and that particular funding gap would cause prices <coughs> to decline, um, because the demand is not all of a sudden changing at, at that rate. And then what happens is that also affects behavior, such as the emerging market crisis that we're in, because they need, they developed a certain dependence on capital uh, that is increasing, and it, they needed a certain rate of that to increase. And what, yet investors have built up an inventory of that capital. And so when the, that inventory, that marginal demand is not, um, equal to, the marginal spending, is not equal to the marginal selling that produces a price change, and that price change itself starts to change the behavior of those individuals who want to buy, and demand goes down, and then you begin a dynamic. And it's like, when you watch it through that perspective, it's like watching everything through a, you know, a glass box, rather than an opaque, uh, vague market. So I'd start off with that, I want to pause there, because I would say that that definition of how transactions occur, and it, which is a very different supply-demand measure. This measure, which is you know, money times velocity equals price times quantity, I think is problematic because, first of all, there's nothing, there is no such thing as velocity. Velocity is a calculated number on the idea that uh, it, um, if there's a certain amount of money, it has to go around a certain number of times to equal that amount of spending. And it's a derived number. We, where credit can exist, so there's, there's money and credit equals spending, and, so, and there's, there is a little bit of velocity, but if you actually say that money, velocity, excuse me, credit can in, actually operate independent of money. In other words, if I, I can come to a terms with you to paint my house, and I can give you credit for, and I'll pay you later, and, uh, and we exchange credit, we can exchange credit without any money going around, and that can produce nominal GDP, it produces production, it counts as nominal GDP, and it's not even money going around, so the velocity part of it is misleading. And so when, I'm, when I begin this conversation, I'd say that one of the things that we should take a look at is what is the merit of a perspective that's something like this in terms of pricing versus the tr more traditional supply-demand perspective, even supply-demand curves, and that would be something I'd like to explore. So let, me, so let me see if I can just summarize what you've said in slightly different language that's probably slightly different language and then get us towards the next, uh, towards the next question. I suspect everybody would agree 
that disaggregating different categories of market participants, if you could do it and could understand their separate behaviors, was a good thing to do and was better than speaking in terms of an aggregate abstraction of one market. Great. I, 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 suspect, almost, I'm, I suspect almost everybody here would agree with that. I suspect everybody would agree that you can speak of expenditure on shoes or shares of stock divided by quantity to get price. Or you could speak of quantity multiplied by price to get expenditure. And those are kind of arithmetic, those are arithmetic different versions of something similar. I think your point is that for many purposes, the way in which the actors think is in terms of expenditures. And therefore, that's a more natural way uh, to, analyze, uh, to analyze things. I'm going to make one other comment to summary, and then I'm going to sort of put what I think is an important question to you. And then your third thing, if you look at this equation, um, if, you, if you regard this equation as a definition of V, because you can observe M, you can observe P, and you can observe Q, so at any moment you can figure out what V is from this equation, that's true, but it's kind of a fairly uninteresting tautology. It, and this is what you're saying. It only, be, it only becomes an interesting, an interesting contentful statement if you're prepared to say something about V, and particularly something tending towards the constancy of V, or a simple set of rules for the movement of V. I mean, like... In, in, like it's constant. Like you can see it kind of thing. Right. Well, if you don't, if you're not prepared to say that V is, if you're not prepared to make, say anything about V, then this equation's not going to help you analyze anything. And so I think your point is you don't really have any basis for making judgments about what the behavior of velocity is going to be. Therefore, trying to use this equation isn't going to take you so far. And therefore, you prefer an alternative approach in which you attempt to estimate total spending and use total spending related to the total quantity as a way of inferring price. Is that a? Yeah, I think you've a, articulated these things beautifully. OK. So, so, so my ahead. question uh, is the the sort of holy grail in this, in a way, uh, and the secret to making it all work is what you spoke rather confidently of, um, which is uh, the various expenditure functions. That you knew the different categories of investors, and you knew how much debt Spain was going to have to issue, and you could predict how much they were going to want to spend on Spanish debt, and you knew that they weren't gonna, there weren't going to be enough of them to um, hold all the Spanish debt that was going to be issued. And then uh, you knew that that was going to cause the price of Spanish debt to fall. And you knew that for some categories of investors, that was actually going to make things worse because they were going to reduce their desire to spend when the price of Spanish debt came down. So, that, so the question 
so the so the question that I think people will want to know the will want to understand is how do you fig if you knew all those expenditure functions you were able to predict what the desire what the demand by pension funds was for Spanish debt um, if you could predict all those things with a lot of accuracy people probably believe you can predict what's going to happen in markets. But how, how do you, what is the knowledge base and the techniques you use to predict all those various um, expenditure functions? Um, I'm going to answer your question with reference to all that you said, including the last. So I want, your first point had to do with the fact that there would be this, if we could agree that we disaggregate and look at them individually, that that would be good. I want to say that um, through all of the discussion that I had with virtually every policymaker and every economist at the time, there was not disaggregation and not that going on. So I'm glad that we can agree that this is a better thing. The, the conversations, of course, you were in even more than I was in, was the notion of um, would the market like it or would the market not like it and could we build confidence in the market? And because it didn't have the discussion is do you know who the buyers of that market are? Do you know their motivations? Do you understand that? No, they didn't understand that in there. I n never had a, it disaggregated and looked that way. So I'm glad that we can establish the fact that disaggregating it is a good thing in terms of that. So that's good. I just didn't want to skip over that. Okay. Okay. As we deal with your second point as pertains to velocity, uh, um, as I, I relate to that, um, I think you put, derived directly the point. Okay, so what is this thing velocity? Okay, it's some concept that we come up with, but we certainly have to know what it is. And I'm saying much more tangibly, there is no series called velocity. It's a derived number. And so if we just sort of said, okay, there is the spending of credit, and then there is such a thing called, there is some element of velocity, meaning if I actually took the money and I gave it to you and you moved it and moved it elsewhere, we could actually calculate what is velocity of money as distinct from that which is credit, which is something else that we can measure. And by being able to measure it, we can then um, accomplish it. So that was the second point. Um, regarding then, uh, essentially, you know, the, the element of, of your question, um, I think that the best thing for me to say is that by taking those, that particular approach and having that particular basis of knowledge, what it does, it evolves over a period of time. And that knowledge, you know, like when you step back and you look at it that way, every, a lot more things make sense to you. Um, and it is the acquiring of that over a period of time that becomes a richer and richer understanding how we do that, to some extent, exactly is in a proprietary domain. I won't get into the nitty-gritty. But what I am saying is that when we do that, if you start to look at that and you say, gee, who is the buyer who has done what and how, and therefore the price must have changed because of that guy or somebody along those lines, then we're in a position that we're talking a language. And so when we were, when you were in Washington and we would do this, as we go down that list and we list those particular buyers and their spending and we start to think and have conversations, you could change the number that you're including or I could change the number I'm including and we can talk about reasons. And now we're having a much more granular understanding that is not 
a, a flim-flam, you know, not a vague kind of thing. It's much more tangible. And you can pick your number. I pick my number. And then we say, what are the insights? Well, it depends how much you know about them. Okay, let's move. Uh, what I found most um, helpful in reading various things uh, that you and your colleagues have uh, written uh, over the years is your um, analysis of what might be called debt dynamics, uh, debt cyclings, leveraging and deleveraging. And that, in a way, is an answer to the question I just asked, because that's, uh, that gives a sort of explanation of uh, how some of these things, how some of these components of, of uh, expenditure demand uh, evolve. So maybe you could move a bit to that. Yeah, great. Um, but I want to just start off by saying I think that there are three things that the economy works with these three things trying to find an equilibrium. I just want to touch on those things and that there are two levers to those increments on monetary and fiscal policy. And I want to say that, uh, first of all, a basic notion is that debt has to be rising in line with the income that's necessary to service that debt. And when debt is not rising in line with that, then there becomes the debt cycle. It produces a debt cycle. So that's kind of a first equilibrium. Debt can't be rising faster than the income that's going to be necessary to service it. The second equilibrium is that the operating rate of the economy cannot be either too high or too low when we have the usual business cycles. What we have is a recession, it's too depressed, we have an easing of monetary policy for one reason or another. You go up kind of to the middle of the cycle, that may be labor or business operating capacity. And when you get to the higher level of the cycle where things are tight and the growth in demand is exceeding the growth in the capacity to produce, it produces inflation. You have a tightness of monetary policy to try to bring it back in line. And we have an economy that's built kind of at an equilibrium, and we try to seek an equilibrium, and that's the comfort, comfortable element. And when we go and you see changes in monetary policy and changes in market behavior depending on where you are in that cycle. So for example, if we're in the middle of the cycle here in the United States, and so on. That's a spot where there should be, and demand is rising, capacity is being shrunk. That's a spot where people start to, central banks start to think about, oh, well, maybe I should start to put on the brakes, and that's sort of classically that way, and it seeks that equilibrium. And the third equilibrium that I think is important, and they're all tied together, is that the projected returns of asset classes should be at, uh, at a level that makes sense. And if they're out of line with each other, in other words, cash, having a low ex lower expected return than bonds, having a lower expected return than equities in some manner that's representative of those risk profiles, if that gets out of line in a certain way, it'll produce a certain disequilibrium. That means that it almost, it has to get in, back in line because let's say, for example, if we think it's a no-brainer that cash is going to be a bad investment and something's going to be a better investment, then everybody will borrow cash and buy that other investment inappropriately and it'll feed something. And that that produces this, this wealth effect, which is the third influence, this nature of that wealth effect, has a big effect on economic activity and so on. And so that equilibrium. So what happened in the markets, by and large, 
is that when we had the shift to the financial crisis and a combination of investors sought safety in cash and bonds, so a lot of money went to cash and bonds, and central banks bought, put more cash in the markets, the expected return of cash became significantly negative and so on, while at the same time, essentially, the expected return of equities was then at higher and there was a repairing going on because the action of putting liquidity into the system meant that there was less financial risk for there, plus there was the purchases that caused asset prices to go up. And so we had to come to something that's a reasonable equilibrium. And that these three things happen sort of like a simultaneously equation. And so then, if we go through that, what I'm saying is to you know, give this notion that there are basically three things that matter. First of all, over a period of time, you can spend what you earn. That's not over the short run, because there's credit. But you can spend what you earn. And whether, how fast that rises is productivity. You either you work harder, you work more hours, or you have more output from that hour, and that's productivity. And that actually, if you watch that sort of core level of spending, it doesn't vary around too much. And then we have cycles that are around that, and there are two big types of cycles that we have. First, there's the short-term debt cycle, which we call also the business cycle, that we're all acquainted with, and I won't recount it, but it's sort of the thing I touched on. And then there is, is, is a long-term debt cycle, and with the long-term debt cycle, when that operates, we get to a point where that can continue. If you go back and you know, even read history in the form of the Old Testament and so on, it's like every 50 years, the you know, year of Jubilee, you're supposed to do a restructuring, and you have these restructurings. And that particularly happens when the particular dynamic means that you can't, you can't lower interest rates below zero. And you start to hit zero interest rates, something like that, and now the game changes in terms of its basic dynamic. You have to start to print money. And so that one could look at an economy, as I look at each economy, I sort of ask myself, well, what is productivity going to grow at over the period? Is there inventiveness? What are those determinants? Where am I in the short-term debt cycle? So for example, in the United States, we're kind of in the middle part of that cycle. If I was looking at GDP gap and operating rates and so on, somewhere in the middle, we're not exactly sure where that is. And if we took at the long-term debt cycle, most importantly, debt service expenditures, not the level of debt, but debt service expenditures relative to income, that becomes a consideration. Because when debt service expenditures increase relative to income or the capacity to create new debt, it squeezes out consumption. So that's the nature of those cycles. And I'm, what I'm saying is that, generally speaking, it's the interactions of those cycles that we are seeing. So I, I think we have to say, Okay, is, is that true? You know, is that true? Is it money and credit? That's what we debate. We can debate. And then I just would apply those, if we wanted, to, you know, sort of where we are now. So I'll, if, if, if so I say something in, in uh, the cycle, I could describe it more fleshed out, I mean, how that, how that occurred. Why don't you say something? I mean, one of the things that is a centerpiece of your uh, analysis over time of various events is... Uh, discussion of deleveragings and a discussion of what you call ugly deleveragings uh, versus beautiful deleveragings um, and how policy sort of confronts them. So maybe you could say something about uh, the role of deleveragings de as you understand them. First, as far as this debt 
service interest rate dynamic that occurs is important in oil cycles is that when a central bank tightens monetary policy or let's say raises interest rates typically, what they're doing is they have three effects that's negative. And those three effects are, first, um, it makes um, the monthly payments on debt higher. So if you buy a car or a house, the monthly payments rise. Therefore, it reduces the demand. Secondly, the debt, the interest rate, is the discount rate used to calculate the value of investments. Every investment uh, is a lump sum payment in exchange for a cash flow. And it's the present value. And as that discount rate goes up, it has a negative effect on investments, which has a negative wealth effect. And third, it makes the cost of servicing debt more expensive. And so that's why tightness of monetary policy has, a has that effect, and that's why it has an easing effect. When we reach the point where we have to lower the debt-to-income ratios, because we now are at the end, zero interest rates and the, and the like, there are four ways, basically, that that can happen. First of all, you can have a debt restructuring. But, uh, in other words, we agree that you can't make that payment, so what can you, payment can you make? And we might say that might be 50 cents on the dollar. There are three ways that you can have a debt restructuring. Either say, it's going to be 50 cents on the dollar, and you pay me my 50 cents. Or you could say, I'm going to give you more time to pay it out over time, or I'm going to give you an artificially low interest rate. Those are the three ways we do that. And in any case, it's a restructuring. The problem with that, and, and it works, we need, always need to do that. That deleveraging, de, de, de that form of deleveraging, has a problem associated with it, which is one man's assets are another man's, one man's liabilities are another man's assets. So as you write down the value of that, that money, it has a negative wealth effect, and therefore it's limited and has this compounding effect. But nonetheless, it needs to be done. Restructurings need to happen. Certainly, austerity can be the thing, meaning just spend less and start paying back. You can do that. The problem with that, the challenge, of course, and that's what's needed always, of course, but the other side is because one man's spending is another man's income. When that, it's like stand, all of us standing up at the football game together, it, it doesn't work because it adequately what happens is then the spending goes down and it feeds on itself, so all deleveragings have operated that way. There's also a redistribution of wealth in some fashion or another. It's like within Europe, there can be Germany to Italy and Spain, or it can be in one there to help to deal with that. There was always an element that's typical of that process. And then there's essentially debt monetization. In other words, the central bank purchases financial assets and puts more money in the system, which is very much similar to when there were coin, gold coins and the Romans would uh, put a little bit less gold in the gold coins and so on. It's a form of essentially monetization as a way of operating. And there's a dynamic that occurs that way. What happens is a beautiful deleveraging, in other words, what I mean of the leveraging is you've got to bring your debt, relative, debt and debt service down relative to what you can afford. And it is a means by which there's a balance of those happening. Because the first two of those are deflationary, reduces demand, reduces spending. They're deflationary. Uh, debt monetization is, in, is all things being equal inflationary. And so it is in the neutralizing to have enough of the deflationary and enough of the inflationary so that you don't produce that. And that what you're actually seeing as a result of that, 
Yeah. And so the most important measure, to use a very simplified measure, is the issue of um, whether you can have a monetary policy that produces a nominal rate of growth which is above the nominal interest rate. Because th there are a number of dimensions here. These are various deleveragings, and, and, and they're in your book. But these are the ugly deleveraging. So we take the time of, of, of looking at the composition of this. This, this will take us too much time to, to go through. But inevitably, what happens is, such as in March 1933, the Great Depression, when we went off the gold standard, and uh, Roosevelt um, uh, decides that he's going to print a certain amount of money, neutralize the deflation, that was the bottom. So we have to have a nominal growth rate that is above, in other words, inflation plus real growth, inflation plus real growth, has got to be, by and large, above the nominal interest rate. Otherwise, the debt burden will compound in and of itself at a rate that's faster than the rate of growth of income. So just imagine, let's say, if you had $100,000 of income and your interest was 7%, it's going to compound at 7%. And if your income growth is only 3% and it's compounding at 3 then that extra 4 is going to be a burden. So that's my quick and dirty way so of... So how do you think about the... So how in, in, in your way of thinking do you do you think about the do you think about the following kind of issue so it it seems pretty clear and I, I I certainly would agree with you and I suspect most people would agree with you that if you have a debt problem and then your interest rate is substantially above your growth rate your debt problem is likely to get worse rather than better and whatever manifestation of your debt problem there is it's likely to get worse too so let so let, I'm, I'm there now, one of the things you hold out as a solution is what you call monetization, but I think essentially equivalently, but maybe I'm wrong, could be called inflating away the debt. And so that raises a question which has been a preoccupation for many, which is if the interest rate is zero because you've pursued expansionary enough monetary policy that the interest rate is zero, and how can you make there be inflation just by things that a central bank does? Clearly, if you went above, if you brought, if you flew helicopters over the country and you dropped enough money, you could dropped enough counterfeit money, you could make the inflation rate be whatever you want it to be. But in a sense, that would be transferring money to people, and we would tend to call that fiscal policy. So the question is, can, in your view, a central bank always guarantee and generate as much inflation as it wants if it's constrained by the fact that it sort of can't push interest rates below zero, or in conventional terminology, is in the liquidity trap? Great. Great question. Uh, I think that... Um, <coughs> Um, I wanted to first of all emphasize that a beautiful deleveraging does not have an uncomfortable amount of inflation and does not have an uncomfortable, it has growth, positive growth with debt to income ratios going down and a low level of inflation but a tolerable level of inflation. So it's negating the deflation in much the same way as existed in the Great 
depression years and so on. I just wanted to say that. And it's in, in, in achieving the balance. It is one of those things which we ethically uh, uh, don't like in a sense of saying it's changing the rules of the game. So it's one of those things I just want to emphasize that I, you know, is, is a pill that a lot of people have had a problem swallowing. Nonetheless, the issue of, of when you have a debt, too much debt, and what you do with that situation is the key is to, most importantly, spread it over a lot of years, spread it over a lot of people, and so on. So if you look at those debts, anyway, I won't digress into that, but it's always spread it out, not let it have that concentrated impact. What happens is, as we did it, a beautiful deleveraging is exemplified by that which we have had so, so far in the United States, meaning that by through those purchases, um, and I, which may be near our limits now. When we had debt as a promise to deliver money, and when the Federal Reserve made those purchases, it then goes to bondholders and the equivalent of those purchases who then say, I'm going to take that and spend that on other things. And that went worked its way through the system. It's a much inferior way to the traditional interest rate system, but what it does is it produces a wealth, positive wealth effect, and it reduces the illiquidity problem arising from the debt service payments. And what that we, we've done is go from a situation in which we had a terrible illiquidity to an abundance of liquidity. We now have a lot of liquidity in that world. And that process of doing that caused the risk, caused all the way, you know, guy has cash, then he goes to a bond, then they go from a bond to stocks, and they go out and then they lower, they bid for return. As they're bidding for these higher returns, that bidding causes the price to go up and those expected returns to come down. So the world has had the expected returns of those asset classes coming down. They're now quite low, roughly about 1% for cash, 3% for bonds, 4 5%, 4.5% for equities. And that, that movement in that direction caused a wealth effect while we had liquidity. So that was able to be achieved, and so we have debt-to-income ratios going down and all of that. The question as we go forward is, what does the next easing look like? So because the last easing through quantitative easing was something where we had illiquidity and liquidity was provided, and we had large risk premiums, so relative cash relative to equity expected returns allowed a movement down the curve that pushed those expected returns down in the higher assets. If we go into a downturn, we're going to probably have to have a different type of monetary policy because the power of quantitative easing is much diminished relative to it to what it was. Someday we will have a downturn. <coughs> Downturns happen. We're close to a zero interest rate if you were to have another downturn for whatever that, those reasons. Monetary policy marginally will be less effective than it was. And we will have to give a lot of thought to that. Because the first choice of monetary policy, you always pick the best one first. Best one was interest rates. Second choice is quantitative easing. We're going to have to look at the third choice, and it represents an inter interesting intellectual dilemma. Um, so I can't yet say, we can't yet know how that's going to work. Certainly, it'd have quantitative easing, but it'd be a lot less effective, I think. Your thoughts? No. I, don't, uh, I don't disagree with you that um, 
we're well past the fifth inning in terms of the efficacy of quantitative, uh, in terms of the efficacy of uh, quantitative easing. Unfortunately, I have um, some question about the efficacy of the principal alternative uh, that is discussed at present, which is forward guidance. Yeah, me too. Uh, forward, guidance works, forward guidance works beautifully if the market believes you. The best case for forward guidance is if the market believes that you're going to keep rates low till whenever you say you are. But then whenever the time comes, you're able to do what you want. <laughs> right. But that's not likely to work for a long time. And there's the risk that the market won't believe you. So you don't get the benefit when you make the announcement. But you feel a need to carry through on the announcement to preserve your credibility, in which case you haven't gained on the one end and you've lost on the other end. So I think forward guidance is also a, uh, is also a, complicated, uh, a complicated kind of, uh, uh, kind of proposition. But say something slightly more about, maybe this would be a way to ask, uh, ask the question. Many people think that there's a fairly substantial deleveraging ahead in emerging markets. For emerging markets as a whole, or if you want to choose one country as an example, choose, choose that country as an example, and sort of say something about, uh, say something about how you would, if you were advising a policymaker, guide them to find this balance between these various elements that you've identified. Uh, great. If, if, if I can, I can maybe cut through a number of countries. We could look at the U.S., Europe, China, and so on, and emerging, because they're all connected. And I'll just do it real quick. Okay. Would, that, would that work? These are the, on the upper left, and I'm just going to flash quickly, that's, uh, those are debt-to-income ratios. To, this is the GDP slack on the right. So in other words, where we are in the cycle. These are, on the lower left, is the debt growth rate. So what you can see is the bubbles in terms of, uh, it, it, well, 1990 bubble, 2010 bubble, and so on. And then you can see the money growth on the lower right to give a sense. So what the United States is in is, um, it's in the mid part of that cycle as reflected to there, with still very high debt to income ratios, and that, and, uh, but the debt service ratios have come down. And we're not in a debt bubble here. We actually did some actual reductions in, in the debts. And we met, filled with money. We made, replaced some of that debt. And that's how that worked. This is peripheral Europe. And so that's their debt to income ratios. And what, we, and, and what happened here is you could see these debt growth rates. This is the lower left chart. You could see these debt growth rates relative to income were significantly outstripping. And if you go to the buyers, you couldn't continue that. And we see then we have ended that. And what we've done in the equilibrium level of debt, meaning you can have it grow at a rate that it can be serviced, is very low, close to the productivity level. And that level of debt growth is consistent with a very depressed economy. In other words, if you don't have debt growth, you're going to have that kind of GDP slack. So equilibrium level in debt rising relative to income is equal, if you strive that equilibrium, debt relative to income, you're down, it, 
you have a depressed economy. That is Europe. So we, we are stuck structurally in a with a challenge of monetary policy. China, uh, I, I think I should touch on, China is in a debt bubble. Certain sectors of its economy, particularly some of the state-owned enterprises and some of the local governments, are particularly in a debt bubble. Its debt levels are over here. They're not, for the whole economy as a whole, whole particularly high, but they are so concentrated. There's no household debt to speak of. There's no central government debt. And we're going to have to have some element of restructuring. We have a capacity slack, and there should be a tightness of monetary policy. This is going to have a ripple effect on the rest of the economy. And so what we, when we get to emerging countries, uh, which while you referred to what I'm calling the Fragile Five, or what somebody calls the Fragile Five, when we're, when we're getting to that, we have to understand that a couple of things have existed in those. First, that they've been significantly dependent on China, and we're going to have a slowing growth that relates to China. And in addition, they've been experiencing capital flows, essentially, that has been in an unsustainable way, mostly particularly also related to lots of equity flows. That what happened is, um, um, as we're dealing with, here we have the current account balances in the upper right. So what happened there is, very classically, investing in emerging markets became the fashion for, all markets go through these cycles. First of all, nobody does it. Then the people who do it are the smart people, they go in. And then they, and as they go in, the prices go up and up. And then people become more and more comfortable doing it. And then they do it in greater or greater amounts. And as they do it in greater and greater amounts, everybody's comfortable doing it. And then the dependence of the recipient of that capital, become, they become dependent on that. And so the current account in any one year represents that year's incremental addition to the portfolio, which is required by those investors. And so you could see that they have developed an incremental amount. So that dynamic is what, what's happening again. So they'll have a funding gap, same as the European, because you can't fund that. And then on the margin, it, you'll lose the taste. And so as we think of Mexico, like for example that you were in, and you take the Tessa Bonos and you th think that this number, that marginal demand, is not going to be at that level. As that marginal demand decreases, as, as losses happen, and you say, well, maybe I'll maintain my portfolio, not add to it a lot, that adjustment process has the effect in currencies and those economies, which creates another um, situation. So it's very similar in many ways to, I think we're a very similar situation to 1981 or 82, meaning that there is a deflationary effect coming from slower growth in China, this effect, and those are producing the, the valuations of those currencies which also cause deflationary, imported deflation. And the question that we deal with now is even if we were to have those more, if they were to gain certain strength, how you would ease monetary policy. Because the key to being successful in 1982 was in the easing of monetary policy when those things happened. I've got some more questions, but let me see if anybody out there has any questions or uh, comments that they want Ray to respond to. Uh, when you talked about uh, debt restructuring, whether it's ugly or beautiful, uh, one of the interesting questions that comes to mind is when. That is to say that we have a situation in peripheral Europe, for example, in which there's been a, 
what you would describe as a disequilibrium debt situation for quite some time, yet the adjustment is uh, very, very slow. So do you have views on the question of given your macroeconomic model of how fast this adjustment to equilibria uh, take place? Do, should we expect the debt restructuring in peripheral Europe in the next year or two? Do we, of some sort, maybe deferral of payments? Uh, what is your view? Maybe you can say some things about the timing or the speed of this adjustment. Sure. I, 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 so to, to be clear, Ted, that there are two equilibriums. I think we made in Europe tremendous adjustments to achieving the first equilibrium. And that is an equilibrium that the rate of debt growth is consistent with the rate of paying back so that the amount that exists in Europe is all, it, Southern Europe speaking in, in aggregate and we could talk about individual countries, but that by and large uh, the lenders only have to roll over their debt. They don't have to any longer significantly add to the debt. And so when I look at who the lenders are in that component, they have a capacity to do that. And that's, therefore, we've reached, the debt has reached an equilibrium in terms of being able to make debt service payments. Always you can achieve equilibrium if you're, if you're going to cut your spending enough through that combination. And so, as we would know, we could, it's been adjusted in a number of ways. Some ways competitiveness, some ways austerity, mostly a lot of austerity, which has put the economy in disequilibrium, meaning, in other words, so it's depressed in the southern European economies. And the question there, as we deal with that element of debt, so there's not a pressing need for um, a restructuring of debt now because the amount of debt, in my estimation, can be rolled forward, and that with the uh, OMT and that kind of structure, we have a, a, a successful structure. That which becomes the quest pressing need becomes much more that which is what is the, how sustainable is that level of economic activity, because it can't deviate from that. That'll have to do, I think it's a monetary policy question more than it is a fiscal policy question because um, as we deal with that, and that has to do with, we, depending on how long you want me to answer the question, that has to do with the nature of the behavior of the ECB and its ability to uh, deal with those questions in a creation of a monetary policy given the nature of the tendency. There's 23 votes in the ECB of which the southern European countries have more votes, and particularly since France is basically become much more of a southern European country economically for various reasons. And I believe that at the end of the day that it's more likely that there would be a shift in monetary policy um, along those lines and if push was to come to shove rather than, let's say, taking some of those restructuring. That doesn't mean that the rate of restructuring, I think that some debts, depends what debt we're talking about. How much of it is bank debt? How much is this? But I don't think we're going to see a lot of debt restructurings existing from this point forward. I think the, the, the more it will be uncertain, and I don't think much in the way of sovereign debt restructurings, I think because we've largely made those adjustments, I think that what we will see much more likely is pressures because of the groaning depression uh, of that. However, having said that, the populations, uh, uh, people get used to change, not the absolute level of their conditions. 
And when you readjust, so for example, the economic activity in Southern European is, is typically declined by, depending on where, 12 or 15 percent is what that, mag that de decrease in activity is. They tighten that belt, and they're also getting along. You go to the cities and so on, and it's not like burning in the streets kind of thing. And so it may be possible to um, maintain that in, in a way where the adjustments take place over a longer period of time. That would be my own interpretation. I mean, just to, just to probe that slightly, I, I think if I heard you right, you didn't quite say this, but I think it was followed from what you said. If Portugal had its own central bank, the right thing to do would be to ease monetary policy and to accept a depreciation in the currency for competitiveness. That's right. The problem is Portugal doesn't, doesn't have its own central bank, and it doesn't have the scope to have depreciation in its currency. And so therefore, Portugal has to rely on easier monetary policy. But it is true that if you made a judgment about optimal monetary policy um, for would involve a significantly lower interest rate and a significantly weaker currency than optimal uh, monetary policy for the German core. Yes. I'll add a small appendage to that, that through the forced austerity that took place also by not doing that, and through the notion of the OMT and how that might affect things, that the level of nominal interest rates have come down to be at a premium to the level of nominal growth, but also means that the compounding of that difference is less than it would have been if we didn't have that monetary policy shift and you had, let's say, a 7% interest rate in Italy and a 7% interest rate in Spain, and then you would have also had a lower rate of nominal activity then we would have had to have a, a, a debt restructuring because that one is dom seven, seven's compounding relative to one's compounding would, broke, would have broken our back. This is kind of going back to, uh, I think Larry mentioned it a little bit before, on the MV equals PQ question. Uh, my understanding is that uh, your view of the world is that like money and credit combined, which is the amount of spending, is the independent variable. And then that's when you kind of approach and then make predictions. So, uh, and then you alluded to that incentives and motivations of groups of investors is kind of where you start to decipher the independent variable. Um, looking at the world today, do you feel there are actual repeated themes that you can derive from different behaviorals of the investors? Or you feel it's more of an empirical study, different groups do different things? and then by accumulation of the understanding of different types of investors and come to the conclusion. Let me say that by and large, the same things happen over and over again. I mean, it just, and, and, and so um, by and large, the same things happen over and over again. And it could be at an individual level. You know, if you put you in your circumstance, by the way, this is the power of big data because you put you in your circumstances and you watch your behaviors and so on and it all of a sudden becomes understandable if I look at you as an individual and your transactions and everything. You know, if you're, 
you, uh, you're about to get married and they'll know it on Google and they'll be able to tell you and, and, and you'll get wedding announcements and that kind of thing. So you're in a situation where the individual and the aggregates, in a sense, can be understanding your behaviors, seem sensible in light of most things. And when I'm looking at, let's say, economic cycles, by the way, they happen over and over again. Just some of the things don't happen over and over again in our lifetimes. And we experience, so the same things happen over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, but because our lifetime may not have had a deleveraging in it, because it happens every 50 to 75 years, but the same dynamic plays out over and over and over and over again. So the point is, as you see it, then you, you know, you see it and you say, ah, of course, you know, it makes, it makes sense. It seems clear that you believe that the world's largest economies are at different stages in their debt cycles. You said the U.S. is halfway, China's near, tightening, Japan's on the other end. <coughs> Given how you believe your economic machines work for each individual countries, when you put them together and you have all these different economic machines in different parts of their cycles, how do you parse out what is the what what are the dominant drivers of asset prices. So it seems to me that U.S. liquidity is the dominant source of international liquidity and a dominant driver of international asset prices. Would you share that view or not? Um, I'll answer the question as uh, generally yes. Um, however, what the way I look at it is at a very granular level. In other words, I'm let, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And so besides that, a lot of is dollar-denominated debt. And then I look at that and I think about its implications by entity in different countries. And so, that's, so that means different things. It, and it means different things for different places. So when I look at it, it might mean that the central bank in a country does not have the ability in emerging countries to be able to ease that monetary policy and it can produce a debt squeeze. That means a different dynamic for those entities than it might mean for other particular entities. So I'm watching it in a very complex, very granular level. So, uh, and, and so, yes, the answer to your question, the dollar liquidity is more important than others' liquidity, but it, um, it means a whole different has all different implications for all different participants in all different countries. Just wanted to ask your view on Japan, if you believe a beautiful deleveraging, as you describe it, is possible there, or do you see it as an ugly deleveraging, potentially? Japan had the worst monetary policy. Um, so 1990 is when they uh, began to enter, have their debt problem. And what they did through that is that they had a monetary policy that quickly went to a zero interest rate, quickly went to zero negative nominal GDP because there was, through that particular time, deflation and virtually no GDP growth. And as a result, their debts continued to compound and rise. And so they got to the point just prior, just you know, like, oh my God, it, for, starting in 1990, and here we are, 2013, and now they're going to produce a monetary policy where um, they, you know, that, that their, their goal is to produce um, nominal GDP. The, the challenge 
and, and I won't get into the three arrows because the, there were the three domestic. Those policy mix makes a huge amount of sense. They're doing it at the last possible minute because the demographics of whose length of the government is changing and there are so many other things that are changing and so they're a terrible debt burden. In addition, what we have is a particular problem in Japan in terms of being able to produce credit growth be, through quantitative easing because the interest rate on bonds is approximately the same as the interest rate on cash. There's 0.6% on bonds. So what happens is when you make a purchase of a bond, the purchase of that bond to whoever is the seller of that bond will lead to a purchase of something that's analogous to that. And cash is quite analogous to, to bonds. And so what's happened is that the stimulation that we've seen so far in a one-off stimulation has come in the form of the currency depreciation taking place. And also, um, a lot of international investors were underweighted in equities and moved into equities, which contributed to the equity price movement and that adjustment. Where there's going to, they have to have another round. We also have a fiscal tightening, which is now happening in Japan, which is itself compounds the problem. In my opinion, you're, we're not going to see uh, that have legs to it unless we have another big round of currency depreciation. In other words, and it won't be a stated currency problem pr process because governments don't state that their objective is to depreciate the value of the currency. But uh, what they will do is they will have to, I, in my opinion, have to go to another round of quantitative easing to produce a currency depreciation to produce another wealth effect. So we're in an interesting moment. Uh, in, 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 it's certainly the right and appropriate policy, but the ripple effects to produce credit growth and associated economic growth based on what's happened now will, will be very limited, and I think we need another another big bout of stimulation through that, otherwise it can die. Can you talk a little bit about your point of view with um, kind of the jobless recovery? So Italy and Spain and um, companies seem to be able to do what they did when they had more employees with less employees. And I just wonder um, how these unemployment rates across the globe, if, if that's just the new normal. Um, I so uh, putting aside the it Italy and Spain, because these cyclical factors have been certainly dominant in, in that unemployment rate, I think that um, we're in an era in which uh, technology and globalization are replacing people. And I think that that's a, uh, you know, a, a very fact. And, and it's not just replacing people as, as workers, laborers. It's changing the thinking that's required. You know, the classic thing is I can go to get my tank filled with gas without a person. You know, and that whole dynamic will be an issue that when I see what's happening in terms of combinations of big data, big processing, and, and so on, do believe that that effect on productivity um, affects uh, the, the demand for people doing those same things so that as we go in the future, we're going to have to find ways of, of, of addressing uh, that question. So it's not just a cyclical phenomenon. What can be a terrific boost for productivity may not be a terrific boost for uh, a, a job demand. Right, let me uh, let me interject a question of a different uh, of a different kind uh, here. Um, many of the students 
maybe it's not a fair maybe it's not a fair question to ask you, but I but uh, you can I'm, ask me anything. But I'm gonna but I'm gonna ask it. Many of the students here, faculty here, are engaged in research, directed in one way or another at understanding financial uh, financial and macroeconomic events. Uh, ultimately, with a view to being able to protect predict them, and even more with a view to being able to influence them more positively. In a sense, that's what you've been very much engaged in and what you've described. Because of where you work and what you do, your research has been oriented to the financial side and has been oriented to the kinds of uh, understanding of the machine that generate predictions that will be useful with respect to uh, markets. If you were telling somebody who was interested in all of this, what problems, what kinds of data, what techniques, what issues, you know, what should academia be producing insight about that is connected with the broad subjects uh, that uh, we've been uh, that we've been talking about? What would the what would the titles and subjects be of not the answers? If you knew the answers, nobody would need to do the research. But what kinds of things would be the titles and subjects that you think would be valuable? for uh, people to be producing? Well, I mean, there are so many. I, I, what, what comes to mind, which is peripherally, is I would say that the number one thing across whatever your area of interest is, is to, is to be learn by swimming in it, by doing it, by experiencing it, not, you know, there's so much of reflecting and then there's so much of learning, whatever that is that comes from. If, if you can't learn to ski by reading a book on learning how to ski, you know. In other words, so ultimately, there's a certain tactile learning and an appreciation of a granularity, whatever that subject is. Then, if I was to then apply that to whatever the subject may be, I would say that um, if, if I'm saying the big forces, we are going to learn. If, if you're talking about the big forces of the future, the way that we collect data and use big data and the way we process big data and the way if we talk about how the brain initiatives are and those things as we're involved with that, um, these, there's so many of those. I don't know if we should touch on those particular things, but they're very, very, very big forces so that the world in the next um, number of years and not many number of years is going to change at such a radically important way and, and, and so it, to be involved with reality, you know, get on the slope and ski and do it in a way that's very tactile and at the same time be involved with essentially the understanding of data and, 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 and those things could apply to so many different things. Now, I can't tell where the interests lie. So you'd have to go, you know, but I, that's the best I can do unless you want to clarify your question. I wanted to follow up, if I could, on the comment you made about EM in China and the potential need to ease U.S. monetary policy. What would that look like, in your view, given that you mentioned also the constraints on QE effectiveness over time and the, your skepticism of forward guidance? Well, I... 
I, I think that we're at a point in the uh, debt cycle in China where debts can't rise as fast as incomes, and we're going to have to have some serious adjustments that are being made that probably can be well managed, but it's going to result in a significantly lower, uh, it's going to result in a lower growth rate and different entities within China having that growth. And that that together with, there's been a lot of building of infrastructure, not only in China, but outside of China, that's leveraged. So what, what that means is a lot of, and at break-even levels that are high. And so I think that as we are enter a position where there may be two a losses will begin to occur, where there's been a lot of debt-financed infrastructure in a lot of different places around the world, and that that's going to produce knock-on effects. Most of those entities, particularly like in commodity areas, big infrastructure areas, that will produce knock-on effects. Those, most of those are not um, uh, entities which are systemically important and necessarily will be saved in that way. So they will mean that they're going to dump stuff on the market. That's going to produce more deflationary effects. Very similar to what I would say, Mexico defaulted in 1982, and we began a, de a, 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 a new era in which there was a lot of selling of assets where, where the money and the, and the assets flowed in a different way. Where in the 70s, a lot of money flowed to them to then import stuff and so on. Then what happened is that when they had to pay back, they had to dump a lot of commodities and things on the world. That force produced a disinflationary force that made the 80s that allowed the central banks essentially to lower interest rates. And we had a boom of the year. The financial markets and everything had a boom in the 80s was, was the best period of time because of that relative shift. So the contagion can be very beneficial, actually, for developed countries. We, the short-term effects of contagion can be considered to be negative because you say they're going to be slower and they won't buy our goods. But when the reality is that the money comes to you and they're going to sell their goods cheaper, it can be a net benefit to that recipient. That means, though, that there needs to be then an easing of monetary policy to do that. And as we then take a look at it, the diff, you know, 1982, interest rates were very high, and all of a sudden we could do that and we could support that. And that lower of interest rates also lowered the discount rate on financial assets, so financial assets went up and everything went up. It, the ability to do that now be, is limited, and so as Larry and I are taking a look at it, the interesting question, as you know, I, I mentioned and Larry seems to agree, that the interesting question on the margin, like he says, past the fifth inning, is, the, is the, how that dynamic would work if that pressure became larger. And we would know that you know, it would require maybe more fiscal policy or some other adjustments. It becomes the question. I wish I could answer the question clearly. He certainly, I agree with Larry, in terms of dropping out um, uh, uh, guidance is not a material tool. And so we, as we deal with that, we play around with what are the tools and been used, and it is the puzzle that we have yet to solve. Ray, this has been a very interesting uh, session for all of us. Uh, I expected that we would get a tour of your models of thinking. I hope that we would get a tour of the world financial landscape as well. And we have gotten a master class in both and we are all grateful to you. Thank you very much, Ray. Thank you. Thank you.